Well, God bless you guys for coming out tonight. Three verses is all for tonight, but it's a subject, pretty big subject in the scripture, so we'll just tackle that. It's um, Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. I'm just going to read that, and we'll do a little few word studies and see what the Lord has for us again. Um, so Genesis chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. So thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Three verses. Subject is that seventh day. And uh, we're going to look through scriptures to see why it's such a big deal and why it's so important to us. Um, Seventh day, heaven and earth, the host of them, it says, that's the whole of creation, the entirety of it all. And he finished it, kelah. And the word means to complete, to the end, to be done. And he rested, and that word is sabbat. Um, Close, but not quite what we're going to be talking about. Well, it is actually what we're going to be talking about, but the word is a little different as we go. Um, That word simply means cease and desist. Bring it to an end. And um, that is also uh, the same as the word. um, And there's another word we talked about, the the finished and blessed and sanctified. Blessed is barak, uh, kneel and adorn. To bless means to adorn, but also to bless, to make happy, as we know. Sanctified, kadas. And we're probably more familiar with a similar word for holy, meaning kadosh. And we sing that song. You guys have, uh, remember that one? This is kadas. Kadash, actually, is probably how they pronounce it. But that equals, really, in the simplest definition, set apart. But not only just set apart, but consecrated. Consecrated. To be hallowed. That word, sanctified. It's important. We'll talk about that primarily tonight, and says, from his work, and that's uh, the work, the word for work is basically uh, occupation, means property, things you look over, what you're working on, business, it's used for all those things, and then from all that he created and made, it says, the work that he'd done. His work is completed, his work is accomplished, he blessed that day, and he sanctified it for a specific purpose. He sanctified it for rest. Now, the word sanctified there is the first mention in the Bible. It's the first time that we see this, that he, that he sanctified, that he set apart, that he consecrated something of all that he had created so far. And it was that, that day, and it was that rest to be uh, for that day. Um, not mentioned again until Israel and specifically their firstborn and their animals' firstborn on their way out of Egypt. Uh, Mentioned of Aaron, he was sanctified to the priesthood along with his descendants. All the offerings in the tabernacle and the temple at that time, or at that time it would have been the tabernacle and, and then the temple were also sanctified. They were also holy, set apart to God, consecrated. Also of all the sacrifices that they would make to God in Israel, and anything they would give to God and hallow 
as in obedience or gifts or dedications that they brought to the temple, that they brought to the Lord. And it was serious. Um, Whatever God had commanded that they do or bring was holy. It was sanctified. These are the things that he asked them to do. And uh, uh, the same as today, really. God is holy, and he's set apart. And when you give your life, or you give your time, or anything that you would give to God as hallowed, as in obedience or gifts or dedications, it's serious. It's set apart. It's holy to him. In the early church, so much so that in Acts 5, you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Many were sharing all their goods and all the things they brought to the fellowship. And uh, they brought everything. And so so many people were giving all they had and sharing all that they had. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they brought some of their stuff, but they gave the impression that they were bringing everything just like everybody else. Well, it wasn't necessarily that they kept anything back. It's the fact that they lied about it. And you remember what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, you know. Um, it was, there was a penalty for that. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Peter says. Um, so the things that God has sanctified, they're serious. The things that we do as believers as unto the Lord are sanctified. And he counts them as holy. The same as for what we give or do unto the Lord. And with that same seriousness... God has sanctified the seventh day, and he sanctified it for a reason, because he rested on that day, and he wanted it to be set apart for rest. The word seventh is um, she-be-e. The word seven alone is she-ba. The week is something that shows up here, and the week talked about in scriptures is uh, shabua. Okay, if that does you any good, you can use that tomorrow at work. The seven-day week began here. Adam walked with God in the garden before the fall and certainly knew all that God had created and he walked with the Lord. The Lord told him everything. He told him what he created on which day. He told him what the seventh day was for. The days and the seasons marked by the sun and the moon and the stars, well, now each week is marked by a seventh day given by God specifically to rest. Now, down through the generations of Adam, through the flood, God continues to establish the seventh day, rest, and at Passover, when they're uh, getting ready to go out of Egypt, they were to eat unleavened bread for seven days prior to Passover. Well, they were supposed to collect, and they did collect twice as much on the sixth day so that on the seventh day they could rest and do all that they were supposed to do and still rest. Then they were slaves at the time, and their slave masters had them working seven days a week. There was no such thing as a rest when you're a slave you're on all the time. You get to sleep, maybe. Um, and very little, I'm sure. But uh, they had them, if they had them making bricks without straw, they had them working seven days a week. Um, but then God calls that seven-day unleavened bread and, and the seventh day um, without work and just to eat what they were able to eat. He calls that and he consecrates that calls it a convocation, a holy convocation, a calling together, an assembly. And it's all part of their being brought out of slavery and separated to God. And you know what the Old Testament is. The Old Testament example, those things that happen in Israel, the Bible says, is an example for us. An example being called out of our slavery. In other words, called out of our sin and set apart to God. 
set apart as in holy to God. And again, not that we are, every one of us, perfect and holy and without flaw, but that's the idea, that's the example for us, that we're going to be set apart for him. We're called out of that stuff we were slaves to, the sin and the habits and all. Um, But God establishes the Passover, and this marks the beginning of their months, he says, uh, the first month of the year for Israel. Um, It begins with Passover. And Passover was to be a solemn observance throughout all generations. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Exodus, if you'd like to turn there. We're going to look at Exodus 12, 14 through 17. And we're going to spend, we're going to end up in 16, 20, 19, 23, and 31 of Exodus. So we'll be kind of moving our way through there. Exodus twelve fourteen through 17. So this day shall be to you a memorial. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove the leaven from your houses. For, whatever, for whoever eats the unleavened bread from the the first day until the seventh day, that person, or what does it say? For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So this is serious. On the first day there will be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there will be a holy convocation convocation for you. No matter of the work, or I should say no manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat that only may be prepared for you. And so you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this is the beginning of the feast. Um, For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day through your generations as an everlasting ordinance. Why? Well, because they didn't bring themselves out. It's not in their own strength. Um, You know, they're supposed to rest on the seventh day. And so God brought him out. He's the one that delivered them. He's the one that gets the glory. Two pages over to chapter 16, verses uh, 26 through 30. It says, Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, there will be none. And now it would happen that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. background of this is when the Lord had given them manna from heaven, and, um, you know, he, he told them it would, it would show up. It was like dew on, the, on the, the grass. It was like coriander in flavor. So that'd be cilantro for all of you that like Mexican food. Coriander. Sound, uh, and so they'd go out every, um, every morning. But on that seventh day, it wouldn't even be there. And so they had to gather twice as much on the, on the sixth day. And so the Lord said, how long um, in verses... Um, 27, now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. And let every man remain in his place, let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. That's the first mention of the Bible of what's called the Sabbath. That seventh day, the Sabbath rest. When God provides man in the desert, they're to be gathered for six days. 
and then twice as much on that sixth day, not labor on the seventh day. And, and uh, that's a day of rest. But what do we learn in verse 29? It says, see, for the Lord has given you the sixth day. Let every man out of his place. Let no man go out on the seventh day. It was given for them. The King James reads, it was given for you to do this. And so the Lord provided for him again. He did that for them. Exodus 20. So the first thing we want to kind of remember in a list of what we learned about the Sabbath is it was done for them. God gave it to them, provided for them. Chapter 20, everybody knows that's where we find the Ten Commandments. And again, we're going to go back and read just 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. And here's why. In it you shall do no work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. I'm sorry, for here's why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and he hallowed it. He sanctified it. He gives us a reason for the commandment. God rested on the seventh day and blessed it, and they should hallow it. But there's more. If you just go back a chapter, uh, 19 verses 3 through 6, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus he shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have, where am I? 3 through 6. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel a special treasure, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There's more to the reason that he gave them a Sabbath. Um, this is a distinctive, and we'll talk about it, but it's, it's a, uh, something that sets them apart to God for the whole world. Everybody else was working seven days a week, or they worked whenever they wanted and didn't work when they ever didn't want to. But now he's calling them their special or his special treasure. And he talks about it because, you know, I brought you out. You'll keep my commandments. You'll keep my, obey my voice and uh, my covenant. Then you shall be a special treasure. Um, in Exodus 23, a couple more pages, we're kind of putting together the reason for the Sabbath and the reason for resting on the seventh day. Um, Exodus 23, 10-13. I know this is an exhaustive study on the Sabbath, but there's lots of attributes to it that you can put together and you'll know um, the truth about it. Justice for all, the law of the Sabbath. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest. And lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, 
and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. And in like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive tree. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. And on your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. In all that I have said to you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. This is only the one true God that's commanding this. This is only the children of Israel that are doing this. And it's not only that God rested, and we'll talk about that a little bit too, but for the sake of the people that they have working for them, you know, give them rest. Six days you work. Now, a lot of us are used to a five-day work week, and that's fine, but we all we do all the housework around there, the, everything we got to do around the house on the seventh day or the sixth day. And so even to this day, we, we observe this seven-day week. And this was all established back in Genesis before the flood, all the way through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, but the idea is, it's no other God. In fact, in all of this, he's saying, don't even mention these other gods. That's not what they're about. They're, they're the ones that want you to work your slaves and your servants and your, your, the children of your, your servants to the bone and uh, you know, um, abuse them to get everything you can out of them. Well, that's not God. God's saying that that's the other gods. That's not me. Don't even mention those other gods. In Exodus 31, a couple more pages, and we're looking at verses 12 through 17. They were building the tabernacle and all, and uh, this is just prior to the wonderful story of the golden calf and how they, um, because Moses delayed his coming down the mountain, and um, so they kind of fell after this. But the Lord said in verse 12, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. Why? Well, because it's a sign between me and you throughout all your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it's holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And it's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he made an end of speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. Gave him the two tablets of the testimony, and some written and uh, of stone, written with the finger of God. Penalty of death not to rest. That just doesn't sound right, does it? Why is it you got to die because you didn't rest? Doesn't that sound just a little odd? Um, you know, you'd almost be having an ulcer about worrying about being put to death because you didn't rest, and it's almost more work. But here's why. He says this whole bit. Six days and the seventh day I rested. That's your testimony. That's my covenant with you. And he says that way 
you know that I'm the one true God. Well, what's the one true God? He's the one that created heaven and earth. He's the one that in six days, as we studied, created all things. And now he says rest. And um, that is a sign to Israel that they have the one true God. That's why it's so serious. If it was just any other God, you know, it wouldn't be so serious. If it was just willy-nilly, you know, whatever I did, whatever I worked, whoever created, we don't really care, um, then it wouldn't be so serious. But the penalty of death, because they're breaching that sign that they have the one true God, you know, we worship, if you're a Christian, you know, you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, that's who Jesus came through. We'll study that. So there's more to learn. It's a sign between them and God. And a sign for what? So that they know that it's him who sanctifies them. Sanctify, same word, set them apart. Took them out of the world, set them apart. And that's the sign, the Sabbath. The Lord made the heaven and earth in six days, rested the seventh. It's really about origins, the one true God, the creator. Um, how important is it to God that they know? Well, penalty of death. But it's more. Why is it so important? Well, because the promised Messiah also would come through Israel. It's not just going to be any people and that have this sign of the Sabbath. It's because through this people, through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will the Messiah come. The one true God himself who created the heavens and earth. He desires to reconcile all of mankind back to himself. And so when we talk about Israel and being the chosen people, yes indeed chosen, that the Messiah would come through them. And yes indeed he's going to continue to be faithful to them until all things are completed here on earth. The last chapter that we're watching unfold right before our eyes, the last days. Um, he promised the Messiah would come through Israel. And if you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 42 and 49 calls him the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah. And in 42 and 49 of Isaiah, it says, the light to the Gentiles. So it's so important that they have the one true God, the one true God that created in six days and rested on the seventh day. And so the Jewish people and his promises to them are the sign that God wanted the Gentile world to know that he has promised them a Savior and established a people from which that Savior would come. Now, we're looking at all this and we're thinking, because God rested on the seventh day, is God tired? Is he a God that gets weary? Did he have to take a nap on the seventh day? Well, no. He's eternal God. He made all things. And he's able to, you know, he doesn't need a nap. But if we go to the Gospels, Matthew 12, we'll see more. But for now, the reason for the Sabbath is a sign for Israel. And it's the Israel that has the right God the God who created everything, the God who sent his Messiah through Israel. Matthew 12, and there's also in Mark 2 and Luke, uh, what, which one in Luke? I think 13. Uh, 
either way, there's in three Gospels, uh, not really in John, about this particular story. It's when the disciples were going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Let's read it. Uh, Matthew 12, 1 through 14. So at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat it. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? They're working on the Sabbath and are blameless. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known this, what this means, the, the quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, well then you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And now when he had departed from there, he went to their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? And then he said to him, Well, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is the man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And when he had said that to the man, stretched out your hand, he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Now the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Grain fields on the Sabbath, Pharisees saw it, and they cited the law of Moses. You know, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus cites two times in the law, both David, who did that which was not lawful, and the priests, who were working on Sunday, well, working on the Sabbath, Saturday for them. Um, just the common sense that if you're hungry, grab something to eat. It's not like they were going out and harvesting and, and working their, their servants and harvesting the field on the Sabbath day. They were out, they needed something to eat, they rolled some grain in their hands and were, were uh, chewing on that grain for something to eat. It was just common sense. Um, it's common sense that priests are going to work on the Sabbath day. They're priests and people are bringing their, their sacrifices and offering. They're doing what God commanded that they do, even if it lands on the Sabbath. Remember Exodus 16.29, the Sabbath was given to them to get some rest. So the Lord's saying here that it's common sense, reasonable, just to, to do the simple things that these guys were doing on the Sabbath. Now, if you go real quick over to Mark 2, just one verse. If you don't want to turn there, I'll just read it. It's really what he's getting at. This is the same story, you know, uh, Lord on the Sabbath, um, disciples in the, in the grain field. So it's the same story by Mark's account. But Mark picked up on something else that the Lord was saying here. In verse 27, he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man, but, uh, and not man, or was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It kind of puts the right perspective on it, doesn't it? The Lord did this for us and for them. He didn't do it so that man would be bound to some 
to be a slave to it. Um, and again, the reason that it had a death penalty in the Old Testament was because it was a sign for Israel. You know, Jesus fulfilled the law on the cross. So there's no more death penalty for not keeping the Sabbath. Back to Matthew 12 and verse 6, same thing. Yet I say to you, in this place, there is one greater than the temple. The hallowed temple. These guys, everything, the temple was everything to these Pharisees. They, that was the, basically, that was the, the control they had. They were the Pharisees. They got to say what goes and what comes and what people have to do, and they were watching it and keeping an eye on people and keeping, uh, like they did to Jesus, looking for a way to, to find something wrong with, with him, and I'm sure for people as well. And here's the temple. Ooh, that's, that's, our, that's our wheelhouse. You do what we say when we're in the temple. And he's saying right to him, there's one greater here than the temple. He wants them to know. You know, we think of Jesus being at odds with the Pharisees. We think about it being some argument or some fight. But truly, he just loved them and wanted them to know who he is. He came to them first. He came to Israel first. John 1.11 says he came to his own, and his own received him not. If you want to go to Luke 13, you'd think that as much... I don't know what the word agita necessarily means altogether, but just the fact that there's something going on that uh, people are, are butting heads over, you'd think that just stay away from them and avoid that situation so there wouldn't be any conflict. But he loved them. You'll find in uh, Luke 13, where are we at? Luke 13, 10 through 17. Look where he's teaching. He's not hiding out in some back alley anywhere. He was teaching in, uh, in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called to her and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work, therefore come and, uh, therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. Seriously? And the Lord then answered and said to him, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath day loose an ox or a donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, he says, for 18 years. Be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were what? Put to shame. You know, and all the multitudes, though, notice the people? Well, they rejoiced, right? Um, and they glorified God, all the glorious things that had been done by him. So he's not a, afraid, nor is he wanting to stay away from these guys, even though they're... They're so hostile towards them. Well, why is it? Because they want to tell people when to come. We're here on the Sabbath day. You better do what we tell you on the Sabbath day. They had control. They didn't want to lose that control. And you know how that is. Luke 14, just the next page, 1 through 6. Now it happened when he went even to one of their houses, it says. 
he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. And they watched him closely. Man, um, you know, he loves them. He goes where they're at. And I can't, I guess, it's surprising to me um, what an example it is to us for love, the things we would do and, and putting ourselves in such an uncomfortable situation um, for our family and friends. But he went into the ruler's house to eat bread on the Sabbath and they watched him closely. Scrutinizing would be a good word. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. There's always lawyers, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, they kept silent. I don't know why. They should have. They've already had their say previous times. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them. They didn't even say anything. But they answered him, Which of you having a donkey or an ox fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And what's it say? They could not answer him. Boy, you got to love a day when... Are there any lawyers here? I'm sorry. But you got to love a day when the lawyer can't answer you um, one way or the other, you know. But I'm not hostile towards lawyers necessarily. I'm at least mine. I don't have one, but if I did. Um, <laughs> it's the other guys, right? Um, but no, it, it's so true that um, for, for love's sake... He went where these guys were. But not only that, this is where those that were hurting were. And that's where he found them as well. And they were healed. Um, Grain fields, having some grain on the Sabbath. Healing those and healing them on the Sabbath. You know, Jesus was not afraid to go wherever they were. Even uh, Luke 19, 42, the triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as prophesied, riding on a lowly foal of a donkey, saying, if only you had known your day, the things that had made for your peace, how much the Lord loved them. And it wasn't, it, it, was, it was not on his side, any kind of butting heads. I think, it, in fact, it says that, let's go to Mark 3, 5, um, if we want to go back a little bit. You know, he entered a synagogue again, verse 1, and the man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him again. And he said to the man who had a withered hand, step forward, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil to save a life? And this is probably the same account that we saw in in Luke, but, or in, uh, yeah, in Luke, but it says here they kept silent. But look at this. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, it says, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. and He was whole as the other hand. It grieves his heart, um, being, seeing the hardness of their hearts. It makes him angry. When you love somebody, when you're trying to draw them to yourself, and you do all that you can, even right in front of them, healing, proving who you are, declaring who you are. It grieves them. It grieves Jesus. What? The hardness of their hearts. It grieves the Holy Spirit. And if you want to go to Ephesians 4, because it really is a matter of the heart, isn't it? It's not the outward. It's the inward. If you look at Ephesians 4, 
uh, verses 30 through 32, what is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? It says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God for, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, why? Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. But look what it says. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. It starts in the heart, forgiving. You don't forgive somebody with your lips. You forgive them from your heart or it's just going to come around again later. They'll figure it out. They'll sense it in you, whether you truly forgive or not. And he says, even as God in Christ forgave you, and we've seen that story, and we know what Jesus said about the guy who was forgiven much and the guy who was forgiven little. And, um, you know, true love. The more you're forgiven, the more you love, he says. But it says, you know, therefore put away all these things from you, up in verse 25, lying and speak truth with each other, you know, because you're members of one another. Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down in your wrath. If something happens, work it out. Get it, get it behind you before you go to bed that night. And so you don't give place to the devil. Stop stealing. And, you know, work for what you need instead of stealing for it. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth in verse 29, but what is good and necessary for edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. You know, these are the things, matters of the heart, and that's what grieves the Holy Spirit. That's what grieved Jesus, their hard-heartedness. We're a long way from Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3 right now, but not really, because it is about the heart. If you look at Psalm 95, when it comes right down to it, it is a matter of the heart. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hands are the deep places of the earth and the heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. For he is our God. We are his people, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. So today, if you hear his voice, it says, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work, for 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. And so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Well, we're talking about the seventh day. We're talking about God rested. We're talking about what the children of Israel needed to do by you know, penalty of death if they don't that Sabbath day, that identifier of who they are. And this leads us to uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, which in the little bit of time we got left, I was going to spend most of my time. Um, really, the both chapters all the way through, I'm just going to hustle on through it, and um, but hopefully you'll be able to see what we're talking about. Um, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, Therefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle 
and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So first of all, who is he writing, who is he writing to here? Well, the holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Their confession is Jesus Christ, and he's the apostle, apostle or messenger. The high priest, faithful and appointed. Verses 3 through 6, we saw this in the Gospels as well. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Referring to Genesis 1. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, more glory than Moses, adding to what he said to the Pharisees, that he is greater than the temple. But not only that, this is where we're putting our confidence. This is where we're putting our faith, not Moses, the law, not the temple. But verses 7 through 19, there is a Holy there. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, so now we find out who gets to, or who wrote Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they will go astray in their hearts and they have, have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And beware lest there be any of you, in any of you, an evil heart of unbelief, departing from the living God. It's about the heart once again. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence. Again, he's talking about confidence. Steadfast to the end. While it is said, today if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts as you did in the rebellion. So, verses 7 through 19, we can keep going. For who having heard rebelled, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who had sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter the rest because of unbelief. So the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 95, we see that. But what's the subject again? The subject of this is their hearts. They're deceived by sin. They, what does it say? They, they, uh, they always go astray in their heart back in verse 10. And it says, they have not known my ways. And so he was angry and swore, they're not going to enter my rest. We're talking about the Sabbath rest. We're talking about that same rest that he was going to bring him in. But but the writer of Hebrews, I'm just going to say Paul because I, I, I see no other reason, especially he talks about Timothy in the end. You can look that up on your own. Um, but um, they tested God in the wilderness. First thing out of the out of Egypt, first thing out of the Red Sea, they get up and they're complaining that there's no water. I mean, it's, it reads like it's the very same day or the very next day out of the Red Sea. They're already complaining. 
They complained about the manner, the manna, and they complained about the water again. They, the Lord sent quail because they were tired of the manna. They also complained, and most seriously, about the promised land. They, were, they went in and spied out the land. There's giants there. They complained about the giants. What, what is that? God was angry and swore they wouldn't enter into his rest. They saw God's works for 40 years. Now, they were probably ready to go in the land. I think it's just in a few months if they'd have gone straight in and spied it out. And because of their unbelief, they wandered in the desert for 40 years and the corpses were left. Complaining. Verse 8. God calls complaining rebellion. Verse 10. God calls complaining a heart that's gone astray, that doesn't know God's ways. God calls complaining an evil heart of unbelief, a departing from the living God. I'm sorry, but I complain. And uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one, as I say often, you know, I'm sure you guys are fine, but I need this. Um, and we don't realize what complaining does. We need each other, in verse 13, to keep our hearts from hardening and being deceived through sin. Um, but it's because of unbelief. Um, it's because, you know, we don't even know God's ways if we're complaining. We're forgetting what he's done taking us out of our slavery for 40 years, uh, wandering in the desert and all, all the, the things he did. And verse 14 is the same as verse 6. What do Moses and that temple represent? Law and works. And so he says in verse 15, when? Well, why is it said, or while it is said today? And what's the penalty? Well, the penalty is death. Uh, no rest because of unbelief. And you know, the more I complain, the less I'm resting. Um, you can't rest um, if you're if you're constantly in that state of unhappiness, and that's why you got to complain. The truth of it is, you're unhappy with God. Then you don't know His ways. You've gone astray. Um, Hebrews four, um, moving on, one through ten. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard didn't profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. And so in verse 3, we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All the works were, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, He's pointing back to creation day. He's pointing back to that seventh day. The rest has to do with what has been accomplished already. And so in verse 4, he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, Again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So, first of all, the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 95, but we also see here that David wrote Psalm 95, so clearly inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
But notice in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. He's talking about the seventh day God rested. He's talking about Joshua bringing him across the Jordan after wandering in the wilderness and into the land. That didn't bring him rest. And so because of their disobedience, they didn't believe, they didn't mix it with faith. What's the true rest that remains? Well, if you cease from your works. Day seven, everything was done day one through six. Day seven is rest. Day seven, you ceased from all your work, and that's the rest. If we're going to fear, going back to the first part of this, then we should fear the failure to enter his rest. Um, You know, to the rest that is a result of the finished work on the cross. All the work was done, and then we rest. Jesus did all the work on the cross to bring us back to himself, to reconcile him. And we can rest in that. This is what David is saying in Psalm 95. There is another yet, uh, another rest yet future beyond what Joshua offered in the promised land in verse 8 of, of Hebrews 4. And then he says, uh, the rest is the same as God's sanctified seventh day. The work is done. When Jesus said it is finished, the work is completed. Our debt is paid. And, um, you know, we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not of works. Our confidence that he talked about, our confession is in him and what he did, not in what we do and in our own strength and in our own works. In verse 11 through 13, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. It seems like there's work here involved in entering the rest, but that's really not what it means. What it means is we have to understand and apply it to our lives. Uh, We'll talk about this a little bit. Um, For the word of God, well, I should say, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience of these guys uh, in Israel when they were in the desert. It says, For the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open, and to whom we must give an account. The word discerns our thoughts and our heart. It's back to the heart again. He sees all, and we're going to give an account to him. Um, you know, the Ephesians talks about the armor of God the, the two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, it says in Revelation. The word of God is sharper than two-edged, any two-edged sword. And that's how, we, that's how we need to not only defend ourselves, but how we uh, uh, you know, take out the enemy when he's trying to use the word against us like the Pharisees did with Jesus, citing Moses. Well, Jesus was able to cite back to them, David, and the priests. Uh, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession again. For we do not 
have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Remember, the only fear that we should have is the fear of failing to enter into that rest. And that's what he says we need to hold fast on that, get a grip on that and hold that. The religious Pharisee types will always condemn you for holding on to grace and mercy. Don't be discouraged because we can come boldly before that throne of grace. Jesus is our high priest. And look what it says. He knows our weakness because he was tempted as we were, yet without sin. You think you're alone in that temptation and in that sin? And, uh, you know, we do. We feel like we're alone because there's no way that, you know, anybody else would do this stupid thing or there's no way the Lord would ever look on it. No, he was tempted in every single way that you can imagine that you were ever tempted or anything you ever did, yet without sin. And that's why he's the perfect sacrifice and substitute for our sin. You know, Jesus is our high priest, knows our weakness. He was tempted as we are, we were, um, yet without sin. We can stand in his righteousness, not our own. Colossians 2, back a few pages. You know, we're talking about the Sabbath. We're talking about rest. And we sang a song tonight. We'll get back to see where that came from. Um, Colossians 2, 16, one verse. Pharisees, they definitely want to, those that like to judge. Uh, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or what? Sabbaths. Really. Um, They're just a shadow of things to come, he goes on to say. But the substance of all these things is Jesus. You know, Paul says, let, let no one judge you in these things. What's the reason someone likes to judge another? Go back to verse 14. You know, Jesus wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Well, um, they don't believe Jesus wiped out the requirements. They still want to lay it on you. Whatever reason, maybe they're trying to get away with something they shouldn't be getting away with and they just want to see everybody else. You know, I, I can't speculate on that. You know, down to verse 23, these things indeed that they're trying to impose have an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed religion, false humility, the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says these things appear wise, they have no value against the flesh. They can't overcome their own carnality with all these, you know, rules that they put on. You know, if anybody should fear, it's those that put their trust in their works and in their own righteousness, trying to keep the ordinance of the law, like the Hebrew Roots Movement or the Seventh-day Adventists. All I know is at a certain point, God's wrath is going to come, just like it came on Israel because of their unbelief, and they will not enter into his rest. Why, are you, why would they keep the law? Why would they try and add to the cross? Worse, at a certain point, only God knows each individual. I can't judge, but they're no longer preaching the Jesus of the Bible. They're preaching a Jesus they've made up to fit their minds. You know, 
at the very least, they're seeking to add to what was done on the cross, where Jesus said, it's finished, no more. You don't have to add anything more to the cross. Everything that was done there is sufficient for us to enter in. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, there were no addendums. And that's what they try to do when they bring you back. The book of Galatians is a perfect little letter that addresses all those things. You know, why finish up with works? That which saved you was grace. And you came to the Lord because of his grace and his mercy and love. Why now, after that, do you try and jump in and, and say, well, I can help, help out with this, Lord. I know that you died on the cross, but I think there's something you missed. Well, no, not at all. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And so, is it that serious? You know, as Paul warned, or as these guys possibly teaching a different Jesus than the Jesus of the Bible, that's a cult. That's not a Jesus that saves you. That's a Jesus you've made up in your own mind. That's a Jesus that has you doing all kinds of works to patch up what he couldn't finish. Are they saved? I'm not going to be the one to say that. But he does say many are going to tell him of all their works. And he's going to say to them that he never knew them. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth for eternity. That's his words, not mine. Um, The letter of the law kills. And corpses were scattered in the wilderness. There are those that will be trying to trust in their own righteousness and trust in their own works. If you want to keep the law, then you have to keep the whole law. And nobody ever did that, nor will anybody ever do that except Jesus. Drop your religion. Stop judging others. Enter his rest. Put your confidence and your faith in Jesus Christ. And then just to the tail end of Hebrews verse uh, chapter 12, 25 through 13, verse 1. So he says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven? Today if you hear his voice, right? Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised saying, yet once more I'll shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And now this, yes, once more, or yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Really? Let us have grace. By which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. If you're going to have fear, have a godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. But notice, there were no chapters and verses when this was originally written. And what's the first thing that comes down the pike right after all that? Let brotherly love continue. Um, You know, there's nothing wrong with godly fear. Um, But let your brotherly love be genuine. And so... I think that's all we got time for tonight. Why don't we pray and go on our way. Well, Lord, I pray that your word would do all that you've uh, desired it to do and all you desire to accomplish. Lord, please have mercy on me and all of us, Lord, when we complain. And it's so easy to do. It's so easy. It's so easy to covet all the stuff we see in society and in, in the world and thinking we should be getting this or getting that and 
And we do suffer in this life, Lord, but I pray that you'd be gracious with us and forgiving and merciful to us when we complain. And we do love you. We want to be more and more like you as we continue to grow glory to glory and being transformed into your image, Lord. And we just ask that you'd continue to do that. Nothing would hinder that and that we could be just grateful and rejoicing in all that you've done and how you brought us out of slavery. And we just need that. I know I do, Father. So we again lift up those that couldn't be with us and uh, those that are not feeling well, as always, Lord. We just ask all this in Jesus' name.